All right, well, good evening. How many people were not here last night? So quite a bit. So very briefly, uh, essentially what we discussed last night was the simple fact that God is faithful. It's really that simple. Throughout redemptive history, the Lord has made a series of promises that are called covenants, and these covenants are all part of really what's, biblically speaking, it's called the everlasting covenant. It's, we could call it his promise plan of redemption. From the beginning, the Lord has had a plan to redeem and restore all of creation. Now, his model, uh, in order to accomplish that, it begins with very simple, mundane, just everyday things. He looked out at an ocean of pagans, and he called a man named Abram, and he turned him into a family. He gave him children. He created this family. He created a holy nation out of this family, which became a womb through which came the Messiah, through which will come ultimate restoration, redemption of all creation. It's a very simple um, you know, big story, if you will. And in the, at the heart of all of this, he had, you know, when he called Abram, he, he created this people called Israel. Now, within the church, there's this tremendous controversy. At the cross, after the majority of the nation of Israel rejected Jesus, did the Lord reject Israel or not? And down throughout the majority of church history, much of the church said, yes, the Lord is done. He's divorced Israel. And over the past few hundred years, there has been a return to the biblical testimony of the prophets and a rejection of much of this theology that dominated uh, the church thinking down through history. And so today, it's roughly half of the world, half of the church believes that in God, indeed, God is not done with Israel. Why? Because he's faithful. The promises that he made, he will accomplish. Everything that he says he would do, he's going to do. It's that simple. And so the end result is that his promised plan of redemption, although it is for everyone, every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, it is still a very Israel-centric plan of redemption. Now, we may not like that because somehow we go, well, but that's trying to say they're special and God is no respecter of persons. And that's not the point at all. It's just that's is the program that he has chosen whereby to express his love and ultimate redemption for everyone. God so loved the world that he chose Israel. And who are we to say, God, you shouldn't have done it that way? Because he's made it very clear that he has done it that way. That's the way he's chosen and this is what is called the offense of election. When God chooses to do something in a particular way and chooses a people, everyone else gets offended. And this is, I mean, this story of the offense of election, is, it just permeates the biblical story. You know, God, out after Noah, you, you've got Japheth, Shem, and Ham. And the Lord says to Ham, you're going to be the servant of these other guys. And so what does one of the first children of Ham do, the, the grandson of Ham? He goes and builds a tower and says, no, I'm going to make a name for myself. And, um, and then 
Of course, the Lord, the Lord disperses that, but it's this offense of the Lord saying, no, ultimately, and then out of Shem, out of the Semites, he calls Abram. And he turns them into um, Israel, of course, which is part of his election. And so then what do some of the descendants of Ham do just a few generations later in Egypt? Instead of being the servants of their brothers, which is what the Lord said, they enslave the Hebrews. And it's this, it's this offense, this anger at God. Well, you said we're going to be servants. No, we're going to flip the whole story on its head. And then, you know, you've got the story of Ishmael and Isaac and, you know, just on and on and on. There's this offense. When the Lord says, I'm going to do it through this one, everyone else gets upset. And when people get upset and reject God's election, they always end up in a mess. It always ends up destroying them personally. Instead of just going with God's program and saying, I bless what you're doing, God. How can I be blessed through it? That's what we're called to do as Gentiles. Um, you know, there's, there's so much blessing, so much grace out there available if we'll simply go with God's plans. And so, as I said last night, I'm convinced that so much of the church is spinning its tires, you know, gas to the floor, just expel, <laughs> like that one, expelling so much energy, expending so much time, wasting so much money trying to accomplish things because it's our will, it's the church's will, but it's not necessarily God's will. And I'm just so convinced that this whole present age, we have such little time. Now I showed this little picture of this elementary teacher's training thing for, it was like L-G-G-B-T-T-P-T-I-P-T, you know. And it was just like, you know, how to be more inclusive and sensitive to the demisexuals and, you know, just like all this crazy, you just, it like went on and on and on. And, I, and like the only ones that are left out are the, the normal people. Um, but I just look at this and I go, we're teaching this to elementary kindergartners. And I just personally, I don't think this present age has much longer. I don't, I, I can't see this corrupt, wicked system lasting too much longer. The, this, this world doesn't have that much longer. And I know personally in my own life that you know, we only have so much time, so much energy. Oh, God, we want to maximize the little bit of time that we have to bear the most fruit for your eternal glory. And the way we do that is we partner with the Lord. We, we get on board with God's program, and he will maximize our fruit. So that was last night's message. Now, what comes out of that is the fact that God's promised plan of redemption has always been a thoroughly Israel-centric story. And this is tremendously offensive, particularly to Americans, um, perhaps, perhaps even more so to Texans, I don't know. But I'd say there's a little bit more, a little bit more patriotism here than, for instance, in the People's Republic of Massachusetts, where I'm originally from. And, um, you know, if, if there's a patriotic spirit, which is a good thing, um, you know, that's a wonderful thing. But the problem with Americans, which is a genuine problem, is we tend to think that the world revolves around us. Now, we can be excused um, of that a little bit because just geographically where we're located, you know, like you don't, you know, we can't just drive six hours north and they speak French and German and, you know, it's not like Europe, you know, we pretty much bilingual as a, as a nation, you know, majority English and um, 
how does it say, a, a pre-numero dos, um, you know, for, for Espanol, a pre-numero a pre dos. Um, so everybody speaks a little bit, generally, you know, Spanish, but that's another point. But the thing of it is, is so geographically we can be excused for having a little bit of the, you know, the, the sort of mentality that the world revolves around us. But here's the thing, is that this book doesn't revolve around us. The story of this book doesn't revolve around us, and the prophetic testimony of the last days doesn't revolve around us, because this book is thoroughly Jerusalem-centric. The story is thoroughly Jerusalem-centric. God's promised plan of redemption revolves around a very specific piece of geography, and it's called the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem, and this is the spot where the king of the universe is actually going to his feet will dwell there forever. And this is like an amazing thing. When I'm in Jerusalem, I look around and I, you know, I, I try to let that reality sink in. You look in the natural. We see in the natural. We can't help it. We look out. You know, when you're in Jerusalem, you see a city that's filled with amazing layers of history. But it's also a city that's um, filled with ethnic and religious tensions and uh, parts of it are beautiful, other parts of it are, you know, a little bit run down and filthy, and there's too many tour buses, and it's just a modern city, and it's a city of contradictions and controversies. And you look and you go, so this is where you're going to rule the universe from, God? The one who made the universe, you're actually going to place your throne in this city. And that's exactly what the Bible says. That's exactly what this book teaches, is that the God who made everything is going to return in the form of his son. He said he's coming back, and he will reestablish the throne of David because he's the son of King David, and he will restore the kingdom of Israel, and his feet will dwell there. His, his, this will be the resting place of his feet, his footstool, if you will, and his throne will be restored in Jerusalem. That reality, as absolutely mind-boggling as it is, is as real as this moment is right now. Jesus is coming back to restore his throne of glory or his glorious throne in Jerusalem. And so that is the reason, quite simply, that Jerusalem is the epicenter. Right now, I haven't been tracking with it. Um, what's the storm called? Harvey. Harvey. Um, these things, so it's, what is, it's a hurricane, right? It begins, of course, I grew up in, you know, hurricane territory. Now I land, live in the land of tornadoes in Kansas. Um, and uh, it's funny because I grew up in Hurricaneville, you know, which this is how they begin. They begin as this little swirl off the coast, a little tropical thing, right? Next thing you know, it's gobbling up, like, the whole east, eastern seaboard, you know, and, or, like, all of the whole Gulf region. Well, tornadoes just, like, go through and devastate a cul-de-sac, Right? Or whatever, you know, and they kind of, sometimes you'll get like a huge one. It'll mow down, like Joplin, Missouri. It was like a whole mile, you know, the Lord's lawnmower came down and just kind of mowed down a whole area. But so my dad, because he lives in Massachusetts, has the, still has the hurricane mentality. So he'll turn on the news and see like tornadoes in Kansas, and he'll call me. He'll be like, get in the basement! And I'm like, Dad, it's like 150 miles away. Like it's tearing apart some 
cow pasture up in Iowa. Like, he's like, no, tornadoes! You know, get the kids in the basement! He always does that. I heard this, and just like, it's, it's fine, these things. It's like, you know, if there's lightning or something, like, get inside! I'm like, Dad, it's four counties over. So but these things, they start out as these little tropical storms. Next thing you know, it's just engulfing half the country. Well, this is the nature of the last days. The Bible says a storm is coming. And this storm, the epicenter, what is the epicenter of the storm? Jerusalem. Why? Because this is the place that God is coming back to set his throne. And there is a very real devil. And so because the Lord has a plan, and of course that plan involves the eventual casting of Satan and all of his fallen ones into the abyss forever, He's furious, and he is going to rage. And so if you want to understand the last days, it's very simple. God has a plan to restore everything. And as a result of that, Satan is enraged. And that storm that begins in Jerusalem, begins in Israel, it swirls around Jerusalem, eventually is going to engulf the entire earth. All the nations will be pulled like a magnet into the swirl of this storm. And it's a storm that is... It's a theological storm, it's an ideological storm, it's a political storm, it's an economic storm, it's a natural storm, natural disasters. I mean, anything social, racial, you can imagine. Anything that Satan can stir up to, to foment chaos throughout the nations, he will. But it ultimately begins and revolves around the epicenter, which is Jerusalem. And so it's a very simple reality that if, you have, if we have a lick of discernment, we can look out in the earth, we can see what Satan is doing. You know, Satan, we, we, we often think of him as just the shadowy one. You know, he's hiding around the corner trying to lure us into a trap. He comes in our dreams and, you know, that he's just, everything is um, subversive. And, and the truth is, that's true. He roams about like a roaring lion, seeking those that he can devour, and he tempts us, and he's deceitful, and all those things. But the primary way that Satan's reality is observed throughout history is overtly through pagan armies. Satan stirs up pagan governments, empires, most often that are given over to the worship of false gods, and he stirs up their armies, and most often he always ends up sending them towards Jerusalem because he is bound and determined to possess the promised land of God, to possess the throne of David. He wants to own that throne. And I mean, it's like you can just look at history and you go, Satan is definitely real, because there's no other way to explain this pervasive, consistent hatred and effort to destroy the Jewish people and to possess the promised land. The anti-Semitism, and the anti-Zionism, the hatred of the Jewish people and this demonic lust to possess the promised land of God. And it's just, it's consistent. You can't explain it. At one time in history, um, you can say, well, the Jews, you know, at this particular time, they were persecuted because they stood out, maybe because of their particular religious laws. Or the, but then another time, they were the most integrated peoples. You know, like during the Holocaust, the, the majority of the Jews in Germany were thoroughly German as anybody else. But nevertheless... You know, so the explanation that you have for the Jew hatred at this time doesn't apply over here. And on this other episode, that's some completely different reason. But for some reason, throughout history, Satan is always going after this very small people. 
And it's consistent down through history. I mean, thousands of years. And you look at that and you go, clearly, there is a devil. So half of the church says God is done with Israel. And those who are discerning say if God's done with Israel, then Satan obviously has not received the memo. You can just look out at the earth and see the events that are unfolding in the earth and go, yeah, I think God still has a plan with that piece of land and with that people because Satan is enraged at them. You can see, it's weird, Satan inadvertently in in resisting God's plans tips his hat to the reality of God and he testifies to the truth of God's plan. It's because ultimately, no matter how much Satan rages, God is sovereign and he's a thousand steps ahead of him on every turn. You don't want to play chess with God. He'll beat every little brilliant Russian kid that is out there. Um, so there. So this is the backdrop, the context of the Bible, the geographic, theological context of the story. It's Israel-centric. Now, there is power in prophecy, whether it's biblical or some other false prophecy, there is power in prophecy. We just had, now here we are, a little bit past the summer, 2017, 2014, so it's been three years. ISIS swept suddenly, surprise, surprise, out of Syria. Just months before, Obama had said that's the junior varsity, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda varsity team, and you know they're nothing to worry about, and all of a sudden, boom, they explode out of Syria. And suddenly there's massacres. Whole villages are being wiped out. They're, they're executing, and I mean, thousands and tens of thousands of people, mass graves, enslaving young women, Christians, Yazidis, Shia Muslims, Muslims, you name it. And we're just going, what in the world? This is like something out of the Middle Ages, except now it's on Twitter and Facebook, and they're posting it on YouTube. Videos of people being beheaded in mass graves, executions. We're going, what in the world? What's going on? Well, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that ISIS, you know, this little group in, think of this, in Syria and Iraq, that over the past three years, and a lot of this happened within the initial first year or so, they recruited roughly 30,000 young people from all over the world 30,000, majority of them were younger, teens, 20s, and they would oftentimes burn their passports, not all of them. Some of them are going back to Europe, and Europe's like, well, as long as you behave, you're on probation. Just don't do any of that massacring or raping while you're here, and we'll let it slide. I mean, it's just, it's insane, but that's a side issue. The call went out from the established, this, this thing called the caliphate. Caliphate is an Islamic term, which is the Islamic government. It's mandated under Islamic law. Think of it as the pope, president, general, political, religious, military, all wrapped up under one headship, and the leader of that is the caliph. And so the guy that assumed the, the role of the caliph is Baghdadi. And they um, recruited 30,000 young people. Now think of this, the call went out. Leave your life of comfort, leave Europe, leave Albania, leave Chechnya, Russia, hundreds from the United States, I mean, all over the world, leave it all behind, come and die in Iraq and Syria, or die trying to establish this caliphate, 30,000. 
we here in the West are losing, as our kids reach young adulthood, we're losing three out of four that grow up in the church leave the church. Um, we're doing our best in the youth groups, and I'm never going to pick on a youth pastor because I think they have the hardest job in the world. But we're like, hey, kids, you know, we got black lights and Nerf tag, you know, and, so, you know, we're doing everything we can to try to entertain the kids and keep them interested, doing all of these things. And over here, you have a group that says, lay everything down, come and die for the cause of this caliphate, 30,000. We haven't raised up 3,000 to go to the Middle East to proclaim the gospel. They are, and they're using social media, they're using all those things, and they are smoking us. I mean, in terms of outrunning us, outgunning us, in terms of recruitment, they have completely outdone the church. What is one of the primary reasons that they were able to do that? Well, because Islam has its own prophecies. The Bible has prophecies. A lot of people don't know that Islam has its own prophetic traditions. And if you talk to a lot of Muslims, not all Muslims, Muslims are as different as Christians are different and as different as people are different. But if you talk to a lot of these Sunni Muslims, again, Sunni being the majority sect, actually both sides believe prophecies being fulfilled, but they believe it sort of from a different perspective. But roughly 85% of the Islamic world is Sunni. ISIS is Sunni. Al-Qaeda is Sunni. Shia is the minority sect, about 15%. That's mostly Iran and Lebanon and so forth. Um, they believe that their Islamic prophecies are being fulfilled. They have prophecies that in the last days there would be these wars in Syria and that the caliphate would be reestablished. So listen, one of the most powerful tools that Satan has used to recruit these 30,000 young kids, it's not like they're all just like, hey, let's go grab an AK-47 and have an adventure. You know, it's not just, it's not just, do any of you have young kids? What's the, I can hear in the, have an adventure. Some cartoon that's on in the back of the... Um, adventure, have an adventure. It's much more than just an adventure. They believe that their prophecy, they believe their final seven years, if you will, that final, you know, that final, um, you know, what's the end of the marathon? The final sprint to the end. They believe it's here. Now, the good thing, and that was one of the reasons they were able to recruit, they believe their prophecies were being fulfilled. Now, one of the good things is now that ISIS is basically just about wiped out, being wiped out, they're suddenly going, wait, this isn't how it was supposed to happen, right? And so that's kind of throwing a lot of them into confusion. But amazingly, and, and if you really track with a lot of these prophecies, the way things were lining up in Iraq and Syria did seem to be fulfilling some of their prophecies. Don't, Satan is a counterfeiter. He is an, he's, he's a very real being. He's brilliant. He has control over a large percentage of the earth. I mean, he's the god of this world, and he's a counterfeiter, and he will use his own counterfeit, false, satanic prophecies to recruit people to his team, and he's done it. He's doing it right now. Now, again, they're going to have to readjust things as ISIS is falling apart. Now, in the church, last night, uh, Pastor Gary asked, how many people here in the room, let's do it again, read Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth? So 
pretty much everyone that raised their hand probably came into the kingdom sometime around the Jesus people movement, right? So we're dealing with in the 60s and the 70s. So now let's step back a little bit of history in the United States. I didn't look at the clock. What time did I start? Just so I don't get... I, I know, I know, but I just want to like have a gauge because I... I started about 8 o'clock, so you're just making that up. I just want to have a gauge. When I get up here, I'm in a trance. I lose all sense of time. (laughs) I usually just preach until I see the last person going. (laughs) All right, let's go to prayer time. In the United States, going now think of this, you know, we had the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards and all that up in New England and you know, all, all across the country. But the last great ingathering, the true last great ingathering in the United States was the Jesus People Movement. Now there were two primary things that were taking place with the Jesus People Movement that were sweeping people into the body of Christ. One was the Holy Spirit was moving. The Holy Spirit was moving, and there was, you know, sort of the charismatic revival, and people were seeing the activity of the Holy Spirit, miracles, he was speaking. The other thing is that a lot of people were reading Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. That book sold millions of copies, and it was not just his book, but there was a interest among Christians and even non-Christians in the subject of biblical prophecy, and people were studying what does the Bible say, what do the biblical prophets say, what does the Bible teach about the last days, and what had just recently happened, well, in 1948, the land of Israel, the state of Israel was reestablished, and that's a miracle in and of itself. And then in 67, they took Jerusalem, and this was clearly a prerequisite for the events of the last days, because according to the Bible, in the last days when Jesus returns, there is a land of Israel, state of Israel, with Jews reestablished, repatriated in the land. And that had not been the case for all of church history. You know, there was some Jews that, that remained there after the exile, after 70 A.D., well, really more like about 50 years after 70 A.D., after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, won't get into all that, but the final sort of expersion of the Jews among the nations. And for, let's say, you know, most of that time, there was not a state of Israel. Now, all of a sudden, the biblical conditions are back in place, and people start looking at the Bible, and they're going... If these, and clearly, like this is not something you can orchestrate. This is not self fulfilled prophecy. And they're looking and they're going, if the prophecies of this book are true and accurate and very specific, then what about all this other stuff that says repent and be saved? Otherwise, you'll be cast into the lake of fire. And now the moral claims and the gospel message now has an incredible sense of urgency behind it. And so we today. As Christians, you know, we maybe we maybe we go to Christian school or whatever. But we, you know, if, if you run into somebody, an unbeliever, and they go, Well, why should I believe in Jesus? Like we automatically go like, well, historically, Jesus is like the most verifiable character in history. We know that he existed better than this one. You know, we have kind of all of our apologetics, we have logic, you know, we'll pull out the blind watchmaker, um, you know, the, the argument from reason, and we have all kinds of different 
apologetics. We have all sorts of different reasons that we'll appeal to people intellectually. But here's the thing. When you go back and you look at the most recent in-gathering in the United States, it was the fulfillment of prophecy and the activity of the Holy Spirit that caused people to be swept into the church. When you look back at the period of the apostles, what was their primary evangelistic model? It was the activity of the Holy Spirit, the miracles, and it was the words of the prophets. They would say, this Jesus that you crucified, this is the one that was written about. And they were expounding upon the words of the prophets. It was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy and the activity of the Holy Spirit. These are the two most apostolic, the two most biblical, and the two most... um, provable uh, methods in terms of having the best track record of success. And again, we don't do something simply because it's successful. We do something because it's biblical. But in this case, it's both. This is the most biblical tool that the Lord has given us in our arsenal to win and convince unbelievers of their need to repent and that Jesus is indeed coming back to establish his throne on Jerusalem and this present system is coming to an end. It will be annihilated. It will be destroyed. And we will all stand before Jesus as the judge of all people. And we will, each one of us, will give an account for the deeds done in this life, whether good or bad. We will give an account. And this is for believers and unbelievers. Now, we will be rewarded according to our faithfulness. We're not going to be judged based on our sins because of the blood of Jesus covers us. But we will receive inheritance and blessings or a lack thereof in the age to come based on our faithfulness. Come, you have been faithful over a little. Take charge over ten cities. How we live in this age matters. It's not like, well, I'm saved by the blood, so it doesn't matter. No, that will get you out of the lake of fire. But whether or not you have bleacher seats or whether or not you're given you're entrusted with much, is contingent upon our faithfulness, each one of us, today and tomorrow and the next day. So this is our message to the world, is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Now, God bless Hal Lindsey. The Lord used him in a profound way, and the Lord blessed Hal Lindsey. And I don't know, it was like millions. I mean, he sold, I don't know, a couple million books or something. And um, then he went on and... and uh, wrote a whole bunch of it, and he's still in his 80s. He's still preaching prophecy, and God bless him. However, I think that there is a tremendous amount of evidence that some of the key things that he was articulating were off by a few degrees. And one of these things, which I want to discuss tonight in the remaining time that we have, is the notion that the coming system of the Antichrist, his empire, his religion, um, would come out of Europe. This is sort of the classic boilerplate end-time template that most of us were raised on, most of the prophecy books that we're reading, that the Antichrist would be like the Pope or maybe some guy out of Europe or, you know, in the, in the, Helen, I mean, in the Tim LaHaye books, the Left Behind series, it's Nikolai Carpathia from Romania and um, that he would be a Roman. And, you know, there's all this kind of stuff. He's this charismatic guy with great hair. And, you know what I mean, he's just this smooth... And, and there's going to be this new religion. Usually we, we think it's going to be some kind of like new age, all-inclusive, kumbaya, globalistic thing. Now, 
this is primarily what we're wrestling with here in the States. Like if your kid's going to college, you're going to high school, what are you wrestling with? You're wrestling with, you know, just all of the isms, you know, and that's the primary spirit of the that we're contending with. And so we assume that's going to be the system of the Antichrist because we assume our worldview into the pages of the Bible, right? But the Bible is Jerusalem-centric. If you're in Jerusalem today, the primary ism that, you're, that wants to kill you is not, you know, um, religious pluralism. It's called Islamism. And so we need to understand the end times from a Jerusalem-centric perspective. So the title of this Bible study is an introduction to the Islamic uh, paradigm, or you could just say an Islamic end-time theory. And I've got a map just to begin. I call this a biblically, go to the map, a biblically contextualized eschatology. So colors are a little weird there, but... This is northern Africa. You can barely see Europe over there, and thank you. Did you see me magically change the colors? So the Star of David in blue is the throne of the throne of David. This is where Jesus, that's the state of Israel. That's where Jesus is coming back. That's the center of the world. All of the nations that are basically black, really dark green, those are nations that are Muslim-majority nations. Now, do you think that Satan has been up to something for the past 1,400 years. When you understand that the Bible is thoroughly Jerusalem-centric and that is the central epicenter of what he's doing, what's more relevant to the biblical mindset? The Middle East and North Africa? The nations that surround Israel or Europe? What's more relevant? The nations that surround Israel. Now, of course, we... In the West, trace much of our history through Europe. So we just automatically assume our history, our worldview, goes through Europe, through Rome. Therefore, God's world must be the same as ours. God's like, no, that's not how it works. You know, if you're from China, you're like, yeah, European history is not quite as important as it is to you as, to you, as it is to us, et cetera, et cetera. You know, everybody has a different ba- you know, background. Now, let's look at a few verses. Joel 3, 11 through 12. Throughout the prophets, you have many different passages. Throughout the biblical prophets, multiple, multiple passages that talk about an end-time gathering of nations against Jerusalem right before the return of Jesus. Joel 3 is one of those passages. It says, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. The term there in the Hebrew is goyim seviv, which just simply means the surrounding nations. And gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the Gentiles, the nations, stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That is basically the valley of the Kidron Valley that runs in between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount today. It's Jerusalem. For there I will sit to judge the Goyim Saviv, the surrounding nations. Now, when it says surrounding nations, it means the surrounding nations, the nations round about Israel. Now, some people will be like, well, but it's a globe, so therefore every nation's a surrounding nation. You're like, thank you for just successfully rendering this passage meaningless. Because technically it's a globe, so every nation surrounds every nation. Like, the term has a meaning. It means the neighbors, the nations round about Israel. And of course, technically they didn't have the mentality that the earth was a globe um, back in Joel's day, but that's another issue. 
Zechariah 12, verse 2. I'm not a flat earther, just for clarity. <laughs> They've been frustrating me to no end. Zechariah 12, verse 2. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to the surrounding peoples, the Amsaviv, the peoples that surround Israel. The siege of Jerusalem will be against Judah. So when it, the Bible emphasizes the nations that gather together against Jerusalem, it emphasizes the neighbors. So thousands of years ago, back in the days of Zechariah, we're dealing now um, 20, uh, well, um, 2,000 years, and then the return from exile. Anyway, back to Joel. Joel was prophesying around the time of Isaiah. We're talking 3,000 years ago, 2,900 years or so. All the way back then, 3,000 years ago, the biblical prophets knew that before the return of Jesus, in the last days, the geopolitical atmosphere would be such that the nations around Israel would have a desire to possess Jerusalem. Now, that was partially the conditions back then, but you cannot manufacture 3,000 years of human history to so perfectly align with the geopolitical landscape that is described by the prophets, because it's precise. <clears throat> Ezekiel 30. What, what is the emphasis of the biblical prophets? Because the prophets name names. They point to nations, tribes. It's not just general, the surrounding peoples. They name nations and peoples and tribes and regions. Ezekiel 30, verse 1 through 5. Thus saith the Lord, wail, alas, for the day. What day? The day is near. The day of the Lord is near. What is the context of this passage? The day of the Lord the end times, the return of Jesus. Now, what does it say in the context of this time frame? It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword will come upon Germany. Anguish shall be in France when the slain fall in Italy. Now, it says Egypt. That's North Africa. Cush, that's Sudan, northern Sudan. Sudan and Put, Lud is Lydia, that's Turkey, and all of Arabia and Libya, northern, again, uh, northern Africa, and the people of the land that is in league. They are in league. There is an alliance. There is a coalition against Israel. They shall fall by the sword. So in the context of the day of the Lord, the Lord is speaking of judgment, and he's naming names. He's pointing. Now, again, I take the Bible through the lens of a face value hermeneutic. I try to understand it at face value. Um, no one interprets the Bible in a rigidly literal way because the Bible's filled with expressions, just like all language is filled with expressions. But we should interpret the Bible through the lens of what's called a rational literalism because that's how language works. And when I talk, that's how you listen to me. For the most part, because you are familiar with my culture, although most people don't quite get my humor, for the most part, you know when I'm being serious, when I'm teaching, when I'm telling jokes, when I'm being sarcastic, unless I'm trying to keep a straight face. But for the most part, you can follow it. And likewise, this is the purpose of trying to understand the Bible better so that we can understand what it's saying. There's times that it's poetry, there's times that it's prophecy, there's times that it's historical narrative, and we should take it at face value. But you don't read something like this and just interpret it. Well, when it says Egypt, what it really means is Pope Francis. 
That's, that's, you know, much of the church does. They try to spiritualize and metaphorical this and allegorize that. And it's like, no, the Lord's pretty clear here. Egypt, Cush, Lut, I mean, Arabia, couldn't be more clear. We could look at multiple, multiple passages. Here's a map, by the way. Go to the next slide. So here's a map of Ezekiel 30. And in fact, I probably should have included Lud is actually um, Western Turkey. So that, that should have gone all the way over to Western Turkey, Lydia. Um, that's the Middle East. And again, it surrounds, and North Africa, it surrounds Israel. So this is the emphasis. This is the geographic emphasis of the biblical prophets. It is a biblically contextualized understanding of the last days. So what am I saying? I believe that the system of the Antichrist, his religion, his empire, and the Antichrist himself, rather than coming from Europe, as has been commonly taught, that actually the Bible teaches that he would come out of the Middle East because the, the Bible is a thoroughly Middle Eastern-centric book. And this is not, you know, so when you suggest this, they go, well, of course you're going to say that because Islam's the big bad guy of our day. And what Christians always do is they just change their end-time perspective. And whoever is the new boogeyman of the day, the new political or theological bad guy, they just try to reinterpret the Bible and go, he's the Antichrist, you know. And the truth is we have done that. We have done that a lot down through history. Um, we've done it probably embarrassingly too much. But the thing of it is, is this is not what this is. All this is, is beginning with the very context of the Bible. It's just actually the opposite of trying to read out, you know, world circumstances into the scriptures. It's just, the Bible says, Egypt, Cush, Lud, Arabia. And we're just taking it at face value. It's simply taking the Bible for what it actually says. It's a biblically contextualized understanding of the end times. Now, listen, could all of the Middle East, before Jesus returns, all convert to some kind of New Age religious pluralism and make... Um, Rob Bell and Oprah Winfrey, their new gods? I'm, I'm just playing. Maybe, maybe that could happen. I don't personally see that happening. You know, like, in other words, the future has a way of throwing us curveballs, but I don't think the whole Islamic world is going to convert to kumbaya, let's just all get along and join us, and let's all be transgender, queer, bisexual, demisexual, lesbian, questioning, two-spirit, whatever, just like, Wah! Let's just all share a bathroom and have a good time. I don't think that's going to happen in the Middle East. These things take generations, you know, like religious changes take time. And there's winds of change sweeping through the Middle East, believe me. But I'm pretty confident that until Jesus returns, Islam will continue to be the dominant spirit that, that has a hold over the Middle East and North Africa. I feel pretty confident in that. In fact, it seems, if anything that much of these kumbaya, let's all get along nations are being overwhelmed in many ways by Islam as we roll out the red carpet to, to present ourselves as the most magnanimous and welcoming. And listen, I, believe me, I'm absolutely convinced that we need to be people who are concerned for the needy, the forgotten, the afflicted, the refugee, and all of those things. But we need to do that with wisdom. And there's a lot of approaching these things with a lack of wisdom and not thinking through the long-term ramifications. And, and these are challenging times, I want to be very clear, but um, this is a time when we need to be praying for our leaders to have a godly impartation of wisdom. Micah 5 is one of the most 
important messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, Micah 5, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are too small to be considered one of the tribes, is essentially what it's saying. It's like you're just, you're just so insignificant that you're not even considered one of the tribes of Israel, um, though you are small among the clans of Judah, nevertheless, out of you will come one for me who will be ruler over all Israel. This is telling us where the Messiah would be born, out of Bethlehem, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He, what is, skipping forward a few verses, what does it say of this Bethlehem-born Messiah? He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And what else? This Messiah, born in Bethlehem, he will deliver us from the Assyrian when the Assyrian invades our land and marches into our borders. So one of the most significant messianic prophecies in Micah 5, which tells the very town that Jesus would be born, the Bethlehem-born Messiah, and it goes on to say this Messiah is going to deliver Israel from someone that it refers to as the Assyrian when the Assyrian invades our land and marches across our borders. Now, when it says our borders, it's talking about the land of Israel, obviously. Do you guys know that chapter in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus delivers Israel from the invasion of the Assyrians? It's not in the Gospels. It never happened during his ministry, did it? It is yet to be fulfilled. I, um, some years ago, I was on a radio program, and um, some guy called me, a radio host up in, uh, I think it was like outside of Detroit, and he said, hey, we'd lo- love to have you on, just talk about some of what's going on in the Middle East, and I'm like, sure, and, um, and so I was on, and all of a sudden, they're like, oh, and by the way, we have Gary DeMar on, who wants to challenge you, and um, how many of you know who Gary DeMar is? So Gary is one of these guys who is, um, embraces what's called preterism. He believes all biblical prophecies already all passed. There's no end times coming. These things are all long past fulfilled. And, um, and he's been debating since I was in diapers. And um, almost. I was in diapers till I was 16. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, but he's been debating. I mean, he's debated like dozens upon dozens of times, and he's a sharp guy, and you know, and he's and he can also be kind of aggressive, and, uh, and he's very well studied, and um, and so I thought, oh, I'm doomed, and um, so the radio guy said, well, what's the difference between you know, Gary says this stuff's all fulfilled, and I said, well, Gary will say we need to look at the timing texts in the Bible, like when it says these things are about to take place shortly or the day of the Lord is near, and he'll place all of his eggs on those things and say those things must be interpreted in a rigidly literal, you know, literal fashion and very, you know, it's that, if it's near, that means it's near, like very quick. And um, what's funny is he'll say, and, and they say it's 2,000 years, so that's impossible, but then he says it's like 45 years. So like 45 years, well, that's close enough, but 2,000, that's ridiculous. And I'm kind of like, well, believe me, 45 years is not like quickly. It's, that's even quite a bit. But regardless, um, he'll say those things need to be taken in a very rigidly, uh, you know, literal sense. But then the abundance of multitudes of passages throughout the prophets that talk about the nation surrounding Jerusalem in the last days in the context of the day of the Lord, he'll interpret those metaphorically. And he got all angry, and he goes, no, no, I take the Bible more literally than you. I take the Bible more literally than anyone, and I will challenge any one of you guys. 
And I said, Gary, when did Jesus deliver Israel from the invasion of the Assyrian? And he was just like this flubbering, blood. he was just like, you guys, you guys write a couple books and you think you know something. Jesus did, did deliver his people. He delivered them from their sins. I'm like, okay, there it is. The Assyrian invading the land is now a metaphor for delivering us from our sins. And I'm going, I don't know how you would get that. You know, if I'm talking to you and I go, hey, let's go get ice cream. And you're like, I know what you're really saying. You want to go to Idaho. And I'm like, bingo. In normal life, when people think that way, when they hear messages that are not being said, we call it schizophrenia. We call it mental illness. I'm sitting down one day, and I'm watching Jay Leno, and all of a sudden I realize Jay Leno's giving me secret messages. Go to the doctor. Get some medication, right? We call that mental illness, and I don't mean to make light of that. But when biblical interpreters interpret the Bible that way, we call them preterists or amillennialists, and yet that's considered this enlightened, far more educated perspective than all of these biblical prophecy literalist bumpkin fundamentalists. And I go, I don't know, I think I'm taking a much more rational approach. And he, he had no answer, and all of a sudden I was like, my chest started puffing up, and I was like, I can take this guy. <laughs> but you know, you're always at an advantage when you have the truth on your side. Um, yeah, we won't go there. Jesus has not yet delivered his people from the Assyrian. Now, this is a reference to the Antichrist. The Bible calls him the Assyrian. Now, there's a range of ways, admittedly, that we can interpret this. On one end of the spectrum is a rigidly, you know, he's, the Antichrist is going to be an ethnic, you know, he's going to send in his spit to Ancestry.com and he will be an Assyrian. He must be a bloodline ethnic Assyrian. I don't know that we have to go that rigid. On the other side, people say, well, the Assyrians were enemies of Israel. It's just generally representing bad people. You know, in other words, it means nothing. So you can go over here like, you, he has to be an... And I go, no, I think somewhere in between using the historical type of the Assyrians as enemies of Israel, but there's probably some meaning to that. I would say there's probably a much more balanced, and it's, I lean a little bit more toward the literal side, to where it just generally, just vaguely means the enemies of the people of God. I go, that's like pretty much you've just meant, you've just rendered it meaningless. But over here, I, I don't think we need to be too um, rigid in how we understand it. But I would say this, that at the very least, put up a map, the next map, we could say that he probably, as he's called the Assyrian, is probably going to come from the region of at least the ancient Assyrian Empire, probably somewhere from within those borders. Like, that's, that's probably pretty reasonable. We're not being overly dogmatic about him needing to be an ethnic Assyrian. Um, that's one kind of perspective. But I would say this, is it more reasonable as, as biblical interpreters to say that the Antichrist, as he's called the Assyrian as his coalition is repeatedly emphasized as a Middle Eastern coalition, is it more reasonable to say that's probably the, reason, the region that he will come from, or is it more reasonable, go to the next slide, to say that he will be Nikolai Carpathia from Romania? 
which position has more biblical weight behind it. Now, I talked to uh, Tim LaHaye a couple years before he died, and he's so, such a sweet guy, such a great guy. Like, um, he's, he's one of the sweetest big people that I've ever talked to. He's like real humble. And, and, um, and the reason that he, in his books, cast the Antichrist as a Romanian is because he believed that the Antichrist had to be an ethnic descendant of the Romans, and he believed the Romanians are the best ethnic descendants of the Romans. So that was why he cast that. But again, I would argue that the one verse, which is Daniel 9.26, that some people have pointed to to try to argue that the Antichrist would come from Rome, has been misinterpreted. And essentially what it says, I'll just touch on it real briefly, it says, the people of the prince to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now this is a statement that's made in the midst of this incredibly complex prophecy called the prophecy of Daniel 70 weeks. And it's this 70 weeks is this prophetic period broken up really, I won't get too technical, but between 69 weeks, these weeks are cycles of seven years. I know it's already getting complicated. And then one final seven-year period, one final week. And so that final week is the week that we believe is the seven years before the return of Jesus. The 69 weeks, it says it ends when the Messiah is cut off. Well, Jesus died let's say, approximately in the range of about 30, 33, depending on different arguments, in that range of about 30 A.D. Well, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. That's 40 years outside of this prophecy of 70 weeks. So personally, I think all Daniel, Daniel 9.26 is saying is that the Antichrist the people of the Antichrist will destroy the city and the sanctuary in the last days. I think that's all it's saying. But the overwhelming majority of Christians say it's talking about 70 A.D. So I go, okay, let's just say it is talking about 70 A.D. And what they mean, when they, what they understand, is they go, the people of the prince to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So what they're saying is the people of the Antichrist will destroy Jerusalem. And they go, in Jerusalem, uh, in 70 A.D., the people who destroyed Jerusalem were the Romans. Therefore, the Romans are the people of the Antichrist. This is the argument. Do you understand the logic? The problem is, when you look at the Hebrew, the word is am in Hebrew, a-m. It just means the peoples. So the peoples of the Antichrist will destroy the city and the sanctuary. If we go out, if I go down to um, um, some... You know, tonight I, I stop at some gas station someplace in Arlington and I get mugged. And they're like, give me your Bible. And I'm like, Psst. no. Um, and the cops, the, because that's what they all want. And uh, <laughs> I call the cops and they go, who mugged you? I go, officer, it was four Americans. <laughs> they're like, you're going to have to be a little more specific. Because the United States is a melting pot of all kinds of different ums, all kinds of different peoples. You could be, you know, this, that, that, that American, right? All kinds of different Americans. Um, you know, you, you could be African American, Caucasian American, um, Korean American, Arab American, or in my case, Dachshund American. <clears throat> I've got, I think my grandfather was a dachshund. So, 
it doesn't tell you anything if you say they're Americans. The Romans were the same exact thing. You had Italians, you had Celts, you had Illyrians, you had Arabs, you had Syrians, you had like dozens of peoples, dozens of different arms that made up the Roman Empire. Now in 17 AD under Augustus, the Romans, which was in Italy, in the city of Rome, as they were building this great empire, they started getting lazy and they started outsourcing their military. So no longer recruiting Italians to be their main fighters, they started recruiting provincials, the peoples that lived in the provinces. And they would recruit peoples from the regions where they were raised up. So if you were going to raise up a legion over there in Israel, you would use the peoples from that region. And who are the peoples? When you go to Josephus, overwhelmingly he refers to them as the Syrians and the Arabs. The Romans, their ethnicity, because the term Am in the Hebrew it has an ethnic denotation. It's not talking about Roman citizenship. And the, and the majority of the peoples that destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD were not Romans. They were not, I'm sorry, they were not Italians. They were not even Europeans. The majority, according to Josephus, is probably the best historical account we have, the majority were Syrians and Arabs. So even if it is talking about 70 AD, it still doesn't point to Europe. And that is the one verse the primary pillar that people point to to argue the Antichrist must be the Pope or Nikolai Carpathia or some guy who's going to rise up out of Europe. Now, whenever you're building doctrine, you don't build doctrine off of one particular verse. You build doctrine off of verses that are clear, that are straightforward, and that are repeated Themes that are repeated, themes that are replete throughout the biblical testimony. We just looked at a few. We looked at Micah 5, we looked at Ezekiel 30, we looked at Joel 3, we looked at Zechariah 12. We could look at 10 other passages which the prophets are pointing to the nations that are judged in the context of the day of the Lord when Jesus returns, and they are every single one Middle Eastern or North African nations. So when you're building a doctrine about the nature, I mean, this is a weird thing to have a doctrine about, but if you're building a doctrine about what is the, the face of the system of the Antichrist going to look like, we have abundance of testimony that points to the Middle East. And there's like a couple of passages, really, Daniel 9, 26, the main one that people point to to argue that the Antichrist come from Rome. The other one is Daniel 2, and we're, we'll look at it super briefly. When we step back and we start pondering this, you go, wait a minute, I have always been taught that it's the Pope, that it's some New Age system. You're trying to tell me that rather than waiting for some new system just suddenly to rise up in the last days and sweep the earth all under its sway, you're trying to tell me that it's Islam? I'm going, that's, I'm not saying that dogmatically, but I'm saying it makes a heck of a lot of sense. Biblically, and then you look out in the earth and you go, totally makes sense. You go, yeah, in fact, rather than having something rise up suddenly in the last days, Satan's been planning this thing for the past 1,300 years. He has been extending his spidery tentacles throughout the nations, spreading his deception, spreading his false doctrine, recruiting his minions for millennia. I mean, he's been at this for a long time, and he's given them their own set of false prophecies. 
so that when the time comes that the Antichrist is raised up, they think he's their Messiah figure. He has created the ultimate counterfeit. And then you look at all of the doctrines of Islam. Well, it says that they believe that they have to wipe out the Jews. Well, wait a minute. That's exactly what the system of the Antichrist is going to try to do. They believe that they're the one true religion that needs to take over the world. They believe in the practice of beheading. Well, that's how it says the last days martyrs would lose their lives in the book of Revelation. I don't think Pope Francis and his crew are about to start cutting off Protestant heads. I, just, I could be wrong, but I don't see it. So looking at the map of Nikolai Carpathia, is it more reasonable to say the Antichrist would be from the region of Assyria or that he could be Nikolai Carpathia? Or, go to the next slide, that he's one of these guys. <laughs> Does that look like the Assyrian to you? I know. Usually, if you want, I put them both smiling. If you want to make them look bad, you put one of the angry pictures. And I don't know if you could find... Yeah, no, you could find an angry one of Pope Francis was when he was posing with Donald Trump. <laughs> Donald's like smiling and the Pope's going, did you guys see that one? It was funny. Some, some, uh, this girl tweeted, I thought it was hilarious. It was like, so here you had a picture of Donald smiling and, and he's with uh, his wife, uh, Melania, and then it was Ivanka, the three of them, and then Pope Francis, and the, the Trumps are all smiling and, and the, the Pope's just going, and someone said, um, the Pope looks like, um, how did he say it? She said, um, he, his roommate's family is visiting, and he's going, when the frick, are Kevin, when the frick is Kevin coming back? Or something like that. It was just, it was funny. He's just like, Kevin's weird family's here. <laughs> That's my weird sense of humor. I'm going to just skim over Daniel 2 real quick because this is the other big passage that we have to hit. I'm going to just blast through it. Go to the slide of the statue. Step, step back to the statue. Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of ancient Babylon, he has a dream. He sees this statue. He's upset. He's disturbed by it. He calls all of his guys. He's like, I don't want you just to tell me what the dream means. I want you to tell, you, I want you to tell me what my dream was. And they're like, we're dead. You know, like, who can tell the king what his dream is? And then they're like, hey, wait, we got an idea. There's this guy named Daniel, one of the Hebrew exiles, and he's like really gifted in this stuff. So they're like, call Daniel, and maybe we won't get uh, executed. So the, he comes before the king, and he, Daniel goes, okay, listen, give me a night to sleep on it, and let, you, let, let it be known that there's a king, there's a God in heaven who reveals these things. And so Daniel sleeps on it, and of course, the Lord reveals to him the king's dream. So Daniel is standing before the king, and he goes, King, I'm about to tell you the vision, to tell you, not the vision, the dream, and what it means. And he describes this statue, and he says, You, O king, are the head of gold, for the God of heaven has given you power and authority and a kingdom. And you are the head of gold. And he says, But after you is coming another kingdom. And he describes this statue. And so each component of the statue, which is made up of different metals, is interpreted by Daniel as being a different empire. And so the chest and the arms of silver 
is interpreted as another kingdom that will come after the head of gold. And then the belly and the thighs all the way down to above the knees of bronze or copper or bronze, that's another kingdom that would come. And then finally, the legs are described as the legs of iron, and that is a fourth kingdom. Now, in the book of Daniel, the first three kingdoms are named. We know Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and then elsewhere we know historically in the book of Daniel, the Medo-Persian Empire replaced and came after uh, Babylon. We know that's the, the chest and the arms of silver. And then came Alexander the Great, that's the belly and the thighs of bronze. But the fourth kingdom is never named. It just calls it the fourth kingdom. And then Daniel describes it. Now, we have always said that it's the Roman Empire. You can open your Bible, and it will actually say in the heading, the Roman Empire. Why do we say it's the Roman Empire? Well, of course, because that was the next empire that came along, right? From an American perspective, yeah. From a Western perspective, yeah. But if you're in Iran, that wasn't the next empire that came along. I was with a bunch of my Iranian friends in the underground church, and I said, what was the next empire that came after Alexander? And they said, the, the, per, the Parthians and the Sassanids. If you're in China, you know, different parts of the world have different histories, and again, our world is not necessarily, doesn't dictate God's world, but we trace our history, so we assume it must be the Roman Empire, but it never actually says the Roman Empire. Now, here's the thing. What is the context of this dream? It was a dream given to who? Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. And it concerned three kingdoms that would come after his. So that's, that's very simple. That's what it's talking about. Now let's look at the scriptural descriptions of this empire and go, does it line up with the Roman Empire or does it line up with the Islamic Empire? Because those are really the only two candidates that we have in history as, as possible options. So here's the first verse, Daniel 2, verse 40, which speaks of the rise of the fourth kingdom. And it says, the fourth kingdom, it's going to be as strong as iron, and as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and it breaks, whether it's gold, silver, or bronze, iron is stronger and can break any one of those weaker metals. And like iron that crushes that kingdom, and now it gives us this description, that fourth kingdom will break in pieces and crush all of the others. What are all the others? Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Whatever empire we settle on as the identity of the legs of iron, it is an empire which, at the time of its rise, would crush Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Okay, so that's the first requirement. Then in the next verse, which is Daniel 2, 33-35, this speaks of the, de the demise. We just looked at the rise of the fourth kingdom. This speaks of its demise, its destruction. It says, you, and it's essentially telling the same story, but except at the tail end. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. So now here's the statue. Nebuchadnezzar sees a stone cut out, not with human hands. In other words, it's divine. This is speaking of the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom. And this rock strikes the statue on its feet of iron and clay, which, by the way, the legs, are, the legs of iron are made of iron, but then the feet are a mixture of iron and clay, of iron and brittle, brittle earth and pottery ware, right? And so the fourth kingdom is one kingdom, but it has two 
phases. And interpreters have said that the legs are the historical Roman Empire, the feet are a revived Roman Empire. That's why they've been looking for a revived last days Roman Empire. I agree with that interpretation because there's clearly two parts. I just don't believe it's talking about the Roman Empire. I believe it's dealing with the historical Islamic Empire and then a last days manifestation of that Islamic Empire. So those are the two options. But this, the rock strikes the statue on the feet of iron and clay. And then what happens? When it strikes them, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time. They become like chaff from the summer threshing floors. They blow away. There's nothing left. So when this final phase of the statue in the feet of iron and clay are destroyed by the coming of the Messiah. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and this other kingdom will all, by virtue of the destruction of this final empire, all be destroyed at the same time. So when this fourth kingdom rises up, it will crush Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. And when it is destroyed, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece will be destroyed at the same time. Okay, This is the Bible reiterating the same point over and over again. Now let's look at some maps. Here is the Babylonian Empire. I put the red dot on Babylon. That's where the dream was given. Nebuchadnezzar was in Babylon. That blue area is the Babylonian Empire. Um, you know, all the way over to Israel. And technically, they actually went down and conquered uh, northern Egypt as well. But that whole Mesopotamian um, basin, that was the Babylonian Empire. And again, Daniel said... After you, King Nebuchadnezzar, is coming another empire. So go to the next slide. You had the Medo-Persian Empire. They came, they were you know, kind of right nearby, and this is the Medes and the Persians. And they had this massive empire. They made it all the way up there into Eastern Europe, conquered Northern Egypt, all the way over, pushing you know, up into what is today the summer, southern uh, Soviet nations, all of the Istans, all the way over there to India. Massive empire. If you're Nebuchadnezzar, clearly this one came after you and crushed your empire. I mean, obviously. But again, Daniel mentions it elsewhere in Daniel, in the book of Daniel. Then came, go to the next slide, Alexander the Great. He swept out of Macedonia up there in Europe. Eastern Europe and swept, and it was slightly even bigger than the Medo-Persian Empire, all the way over to the Hindu Kush, all the way over to India. Massive, massive empire. Then, now do you guys, I always have to tell this because it's a good um, object lesson, but do you remember Sesame Street where they would do this thing, they would split the screen up and they would go, um, one of these kids is doing his own thing, one of these kids is not like the others, and they'd be like, you know, a kid throwing a ball, and another kid like, tossing a ball, and then there'd be like a kid with a hula hoop, you know. One of these kids is doing his own thing, like one of these kids doesn't fit in this picture, you know, you're trying to get kids to understand patterns. Go to the next slide. Then came the Roman Empire. Everything shifts west. You have Middle Eastern Empire, Middle Eastern Empire, Middle Eastern Empire, and all of a sudden you have this European Empire that cuts into the Middle East and into North Africa, and it's relevant it crushes some of the other empires, but much of them it leaves alone. And if you're Nebuchadnezzar, you go, is this the one that crushes you? And you go, well, not really. I mean, this is the Roman Empire at the majority of its roughly 1,500-year existence. That edge right there on the east, that was usually its 
easternmost extent. Now go to the next slide. Then you go to the Islamic Empire and you go, did that one crush Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece? And you go, yeah. Like, you don't have to shoehorn anything. It absolutely crushed Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then some. It went all the way up there into Spain and Portugal, the Iberian Peninsula, well up into Europe. It actually made its way all the way up uh, around the Black Sea, all of northern Africa. And, And this happened with lightning speed. Now, just to be fair... Go to the next slide. In AD 116, under Emperor Trajan, Emperor Trajan wanted to be the next Alexander the Great. He wanted to conquer all of the, all of the eastern regions. And so he conquered that northern area. The northern area up there, um, the, the, that section that sticks over toward Europe, that's Turkey. And then as you go up underneath where it says empire, that is basically the Caucasus. That's the, the Caucasus Mountains heading up into southern Russia, which is where if you're you know, white, if you're, that, they call that Caucasian. So at some point, if you're Caucasian, um, which I guess I'm kind of a mixture. I did my Ancestry.com recently, and I'm a big mixture, but... Um, we trickled down out of the Caucasus Mountains, apparently. I don't know. Like that's, uh, that's where these names come from. So the, the, ca- the Caucasus, that whole region, that was known as Armenia. That was the Roman province of Armenia. And then he came down the Tigris and the Euphrates. He reached all the way down to the Gulf. And he did conquer that, that basin of ancient Babylon for a couple months. And then he had a stroke. They say, well, historians say it was probably a sunstroke. And then his general Hadrian, and then there was problems back there in the land of Israel, and he came back, and, Hadrian, and he died. Trajan died. And then Hadrian cut all of that off, and he went back to the map of Rome that we looked at at first, and he said, never again is the Roman Empire ever going to go further east. And that whole time, this whole area was dominated by a Persian empire known as the Parthians. And the Parthians were the one people the Romans could never beat. And so, yes, if you look at some maps in history books and online, you'll go, well, no, the Roman Empire is way bigger. Yeah, for a couple months. And so you go, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, again, he's the one that the dream was given to, who better fits this fourth kingdom that would crush all of the others? The, ones that, the one that would crush Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, does the Roman Empire better fit, or does the Islamic Empire better fit? And I would contend that the Islamic Empire fits easily. You know, you remember um, OJ, you know, if the glove does not fit, you must acquit. Um, what was the lawyer's name? John, Johnny what? Johnny Cochran, yeah. If the glove does not fit, you must acquit. And that's what we have to do as interpreters. If the glove does not fit, you must acquit. Um, The Roman Empire, you can kind of shoehorn it in and go, well, it sort of fits. But the Islamic Empire fits easily. And it just so happens to line up exactly with what all of the other biblical prophets are saying in the clear, easy-to-understand, literal, consistent passages where it just names names. You go, yeah, that actually seems to fit better. Now, here's another map. Skip forward past the George Rawlinson quote. And what I did 
is I said here in the light, the white, that's uh, the lighter blue. That's the area of the Medo-Persia, the, the Babylon Medo-Persia in Greek empires that the Roman Empire did not crush versus the part that it did crush. Even if you include the Roman Empire under Trajan for the couple months, it still is only about one-third. You would say it crushed about one-third of the empires. Um, but at the time of the majority of its period, it crushed less than a quarter, and, and three-quarters are left untouched. And from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, I would say that the Islamic Empire, you know, if he's looking forward in history, he would say that's the fourth kingdom that crushes all the others. And it also, just so the Islamic Empire just so happens to be the empire that dominates that whole region, so that if Jesus were to return in our day or in the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years, that is the empire that would be destroyed, by virtue of which Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece would all be destroyed at the same time. Does that make sense? I mean, it's just, when you look at the maps, you go, it fits, it fits, it fits. This is the thing with Islam, is all of the scriptural criteria, it fits. You go down the line. It's doctrines, it's belief system, the beheading, it's practices, it's goals, it's desires, it's hatred, it's anti-Semitism, it's anti-Zionism, it's spirit, everything about it, the geography, it all lines up. And again, I'm not declaring it dogmatically. I'm just saying that I believe that in these days, the Lord is giving his people clarity. Now think about this. I want to go back to the beginning, the beginning of the message. ISIS was able to recruit 30,000 young people because they believed biblical prophecy. They believed they were in the final stretch. I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that we may be in the final stretch. We're not in the final seven years, but we are getting awfully close. We are getting awfully close. Now, what happened in the 70s, the Jesus movement, is that God bless Hal Lindsey and all these other prophecy teachers, and I value and appreciate their contribution to understanding. But then came 1988 in a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And Hal also wrote a book called The 1980s Countdown to Armageddon. And there was this big belief that a generation was 40 years, Israel was reestablished in 48, thus 88 would be the year of the rapture. And there was a lot of expectation and urgency and a lot of disappointment and a lot of letdown. And much of the church, particularly the charismatic church, they go, we did biblical prophecy, been there, done that, got into a lot of fear, building bunkers, false predictions, and they go, I'm done. I'm done with all that biblical prophecy stuff. And so much of the church today is turned off, shut off, at a moment when I believe that if we simply open our stupid eyes and look around, the signs are all around us. The reasons to be urgent. And this is the whole purpose of, of the end times, is to instill urgency in, in all of us, in God's people. Urgency for the completion of the Great Commission. Urgency for prayer. Urgency for holiness. Urgency for evangelism. Urgency to be about the business of God. And 
you know, so much of the church is just biblical prophecy, just turn it off. And right now, more than anything is a time that we need to be alert and paying attention. Because as I said, the landscape, the contours of the landscape, as described by the biblical prophets, are coming into amazingly clear focus right now, in our day, right in front of us. It's time to wake up. It's time to come back. It's time to return. It's time to return to the Scriptures. It's time to return to the Lord. It's time to return to the prayer room. It's time to rekindle the passion that we had when we first came in, when the urgency and the reality of this book was so fresh. And it's time to wake up others around us to the urgency of the hour, to the, to the brevity of the hour, the shortness of the hour. It's time for us all to wake up. Amen? Amen. How do you want to, uh, I'm going to, you want to come up, Tom? Or I'll, let me pray and then I'm going to, I'll hand it over to you and let you uh, wrap it up. So Father, we come before you right now and we ask, we, we set ourselves before you as a room, as a people. We come before your throne. You said that we can come boldly before your throne. We present ourselves before you. We say, every single one of us, we are in need of having our, our eyes opened. We're in need of having our cold, tired, um, fatigued hearts energized and awakened. We need to return to the urgency and the excitement of the day when we first fell in love with you, when we first opened our eyes and realized the deception that we had been under for so long. Lord, give us discernment. Let your people be a people of discernment. We present ourselves before you. Use us as vessels to awaken your, your virgins throughout the earth. Let the cry go out, the, the, the midnight hour, the bridegroom is coming. Wake up. Let us be about your business. Empower us like the sons of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Lord, we ask that in the midst of what is unfolding throughout the earth, the chaos, the confusion, the deception, the wickedness, all of the things that make us groan and sigh and say, I don't belong here. Lord, we ask that you would give us divine strategies. Strategies for prayer. Strategies for evangelism, strategies for resistance, strategies to lay down our lives in order to snatch others from out of the fire. We ask that you would let the reality and the urgency of what is unfolding throughout the nations spread throughout your church, wake up your people, and let there be another Jesus movement in this nation. Give to us the spirit of repentance, Lord. We can't manufacture it. We can't light our own hearts on fire. You need to kindle the fire in us. Give to us a spirit of brokenness. Let a heart for you return to your church. Lord, your prayer movement has been spreading throughout the nation, throughout the nations. We have been positioning ourselves before you. Lord, hear our prayers. Let there be a genuine awakening once again. Let there be a great ingathering among the old, among the young, among the baby boomers and the Gen Xers and the millennials 
and everyone inside and out, outside of that. Open our ears. Give us that sense of urgency. Give it back to us. We commit ourselves to you. We commit our spirits to you. We commit our hearts to you. We commit our churches to you. We thank you for these things. We entrust them to you. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen.